0: We'll be reading from Genesis 3 8 through 24. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desires shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life.
1: Thank you, Bridget. Genesis 3 is crucial to our understanding of all the Bible. So the, all scriptures. is really, are, this story is crucial to our understanding of the rest of the story of Scripture, rest of the Bible. The Gospel, and we talk about the Gospel a lot because... We want to be a Gospel-centered people. We want to be, uh, we want to be focused on the Gospel, we want to go deep in our understanding of the Gospel. We want to allow the Gospel to inform uh, and empower every area of our lives. But the Gospel is multifaceted, and sometimes we just think of the Gospel as an announcement. We think of the Gospel as the facts, the truth about what Jesus accomplished when He died on the cross, was buried, and rose again. That's the central announcement truth of the gospel the story of Jesus, him dying in our place on the cross, and all of that accomplished. There's a, there's a gospel announcement. But I think it's it's helpful sometimes to see all the aspects of the gospel because the gospel is also story. The gospel is a story of God creating a perfect world and then man ruining it, the fall of man coming in and destroying what Uh, messing up what God had created and then Jesus redeeming that and working towards restoring that in the end it's a creation to new creation huge story in the Bible and so The story of the gospel informs the announcement of the gospel. Without the story of the gospel, the announcement loses context. And all of a sudden, we're left wondering exactly how we got to this place where Jesus had to accomplish what Jesus accomplished. And so we see the story and the announcement. And then there's a third aspect of the gospel, which is a community. And so you have the story of the gospel informing and giving context to the announcement of the gospel, and the announcement of the gospel producing a gospel community, a way of living in community with each other in response to what Christ has done. And so Genesis 3 gives us context for the gospel story, the gospel announcement story. It gives us this understanding of what went wrong. Uh, One of the commentators I read this week said that without Genesis 3, we wouldn't even have the rest of the Bible. There would be no need for it because there wouldn't be any reason to have the rest of the story develop the way it does. And the the stories that we see about Jesus wouldn't make as much sense to us without this story in Genesis chapter 3. And so we get to look at that today because this story in Genesis chapter 3 is answering these big questions picture questions for us this big picture of what is wrong with the world Like, what's going on? Why is this world so difficult? Why is there so much pain? Why is there so much suffering? Why is this so hard? Why is life just hard? And Genesis 3 gives an answer to that. So when you're talking to people, when you're explaining or you're trying to be a witness for Christ in the world today, it's helpful to know the story. It's helpful to answer the big picture questions. How did we get here? What's our purpose? We've been looking at creation, and then we get to this story. And here's what went wrong. Here's what God intended. Here's what he created. Here's what he was doing. But here's where everything went wrong. Man rebelled against God. And we saw the first part of that story last week. We saw them being lured away by the serpent, by the snake who was crafty. And he tempted them and he deceived them. And he told them lies about God. And he planted doubts in their head about God to where they decided to take matters in their own hand. And they took the fruit and they ate the fruit. And they disobeyed God. And so Genesis chapter 3 gives us this worldview picture of what God is accomplishing, what God uh, is going to need to accomplish because of what went wrong in the world that we live in. And so we're going to look at that today. And there's a lot of different ways that you can look at the story, obviously. But here's here's the angle I want us to take. I want us to look at this. And we say this quite often here, and I don't think we can say it too much, is that when you approach the Bible, it's always tempting to approach it and say, what what does this have to say to me? The best approach, I think, to reading the Bible and studying the Bible is to always ask the question, what does this teach me about God? First and foremost, the Bible is God revealing himself to us. And so we're in that story, amazingly, God writes us into a story and God gives us a part in his story, but our part is always a response to who God is and what he has done. The Bible's not telling us what we have to do in order to get to God or something like that. The Bible's saying, here's who God is and here's what he has done to make a way back to him. And so when we look at the story, it's very easy to just rush to the Adam and Eve and their response and their punishment and the consequences and how this all messed everything up. But I want to first, before we do that, we'll, we'll look at that too. I want to ask these big picture questions. What does this teach us about God? What does this story and God's response to their disobedience teach us about Him? And i to make some observations about that and then look at how first Adam and Eve responded to Him and then make some observations about how we should respond to him. And so here's what we see first. We see in the first part of the story that they've just eaten of the fruit, they've just realized for the first time the difference between right and wrong and that they're on the wrong side of that. They're on uh, on the side of disobedience for the first time and they realize it, they understand it, they're aware of it. And all of a sudden they realize that they're they're naked and they, they need to cover themselves. There's, there's guilt and there's shame that is flo- flooded into their lives for the first time ever. And then they hear the, the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And so they hide. They, 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 they hide amongst the trees. He gave them this beautiful garden to enjoy and enjoy the trees and enjoy the fruit and all these things. And they're all of a sudden, they're hiding from God in the midst of the trees. So what does the story as the setting is kind of laid out for us what does this teach us about God first i think it teaches us that god pursues that god pursues us even in our sin and even in our disobedience that god is a god all throughout Scripture that's seeking us out, that's pursuing us in our lostness, that's making a way back to him where there was no way. And so in this moment where the people, Adam and Eve, have rebelled against his authority, have rejected him, have done it their own way, have expressly disobeyed what God had said, this one thing he said don't do, they did. And then you see God walking in the garden immediately after looking for them. And so here's a question for you, and you need to be honest with yourself in this moment. How do you see God in this this story? I mean, we've read the story, Bridget read the story, worked all the way through it, it was was great. You heard the story, you're probably familiar with the story, but how do you see God in the story? Because it's very easy sometimes for us to see God walking through the garden fuming, right? Right? It's easy for us to see him with his arms folded, just looking for his disobedient children ready to dole out some punishment. I've been waiting a long time to give you guys what you have coming. Like, if you just stop and be honest with yourself, how do you see God in the story? Do you see him as angry and upset, and he's about just to, to hammer these disobedient children of his, Adam and Eve? Do you see him that way? And it's really easy sometimes, right? Because... There's this whole baggage that we have in the human race of maybe you had a really good father, and maybe you had a father that was not that great, and you have this baggage when it comes to this idea of God being our father, and you think, well, if he's like my father, then I don't know if I really trust him, I don't know if I really want him, and when I disobey, he's going to be angry. And do you see God with his arm folded, steam coming out of his ears? Red in the face, ready to hand out punishment? Or do you see him the way the Bible paints the picture of God? Walking in the garden, calling out a question. What God seems to be doing here is he seems to be drawing them out of hiding rather than driving them out of hiding. There's a difference, right? And he's drawing them out with a question. God walks in the garden and says, to the man, where are you? Which is It's a ridiculous question, right? God doesn't, he's not wondering where they are. He's not, where did those guys go? I put them right here in the garden and now there's too many trees. Like God's not struggling with finding them in in this moment. In fact, in the next story in Cain and Abel, God's gonna look at Cain and say, hey, where's your brother? And then right after that, he's going to say, his blood's calling out to me from the ground. He knows he's asking these questions to draw them into conversation, to draw them towards him in their sin and their disobedience, because God pursues us. So he's asking this question. And the questions are kind of funny in some sense. The Lord says, where are you? And Adam says, well, I heard your sound, the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And God says, hey, who... Who told you you were naked? Who, who's, there's not a talking snake around here, right? Like, who told you that you were naked? Wait a second. You didn't eat, you didn't eat from the tree that I told you not to eat from, did you? I, I, it's just, I think it's so important for you to really, really understand the biblical picture of God as pursuing the sinner in his sin. Instead of the angry, ready to pour out punishment Man, as soon as they step out of line, he's going to zap them, because your view of God will always determine your response when you disobey. Your view of him will determine how you respond. When you fall short of what He wants you to do, and you and I, we're going to fall short all the time. We're going to fall short maybe in the time that we're in here. We're going to fall short as soon as we're done with this. We fall short all the time. And when we fall short, and when we walk away, and when we drift away from what God wants us to do in our lives, how do we respond? And I think that the way we respond to that is determined by our view of who He is. Do we see Him as angry and ready to punish us, or do we see Him as pursuing us and drawing us into a conversation? Drawing us back to him. Adam and Eve had wandered away from him, and he's calling out to them and drawing them back in. You see what Adam and Eve are doing here. Their guilt and their shame has created fear. They, they don't have any, any history here. They've never disobeyed before, and so they, don't, they literally don't know, is God going to destroy us? He told us, if we eat of the fruit, we're going to die. Is he coming now to kill us? And they don't know. And so they, they have guilt, they have shame, they have fear, and that makes them hide. They're hiding from Him. And when we don't understand the biblical picture of God who pursues the sinner, that's what we do. We drift away and we realize it, and we know that we're caught, we know that we're in sin, we know that we're disobeying God, we're walking away from Him. And what do we do? We feel guilt, we feel shame, we're afraid, and so we hide. What does that look like? Like we don't go hide in the trees and say, God can't find me now. But we stop coming here. We stop engaging. We we find excuses for not responding to things. And we start hiding from him. And it's because our view of God, it needs to be changed. It needs to be, we need to understand that God is pursuing us. And when we sin, here's what he's doing. He's drawing us into a conversation so that we can confess our sin, we can repent of it, be restored to right relationship with him, and then move forward. And Adam and Eve don't have any basis for that. They don't have any history, they don't have any reason to believe that God is going to pursue them and restore them and be, be willing to forgive them. But we do, right? Because we have the gospel, we have Jesus, we have the announcement of the gospel, we have this picture of God who even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That God was pursuing us in our sin. So much so that he sent his son to take our place and take the punishment that you and I should have had to take. So God is pursuing us. And because we know that, then when, when we fall away and when everything inside of our head and our nature is telling us to run and to hide and to be afraid, we go, no, I'm going to look at the cross and I'm going to run back to him. I'm going to let him draw me back to restore me. I'm going to confess my sin to him. our view of God and what he's done for us and how he approaches us will inform our response. You guys have probably heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer amazing man of God book Life Together, one of the books he wrote he said this, you're a sinner you and I, we all are a great desperate sinner, now come as the sinner that you are to God who loves you he wants you as you are He does not want anything from you, sacrifice, a work. No, he wants you alone. You can hide nothing from God. The mask you wear before men will do you no good before him. He wants to see you as you are, and he wants to be gracious to you. That's, That's the biblical picture of our God, pursuing us with grace, with mercy, with love. He wants what's best for us, and our rebellion, and our sin, and our disobedience, and Hiding from him is never what's best for us. So he draws us out. He's walking in the garden to pursue Adam and Eve and to restore them and bring them back. And we know this because of the gospel. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 makes it so, so clear to us. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. We're all in the same boat. We all disobey. We all fall short. But look at this. If we confess our sins, we own it. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it it may not be the natural thing for us. In fact, we know it's not. What what does he do? He says to Adam, you didn't eat of the fruit, right? You didn't eat of the one tree. There's only one. You could eat of all the trees, but you didn't eat of the one tree I told you not to. And what does Adam say in that moment? Because of his fear, because of his uncertainty, I don't know if God's going to forgive me. What does he say? He says, well, The woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. Do you understand what he just did? I know it's easy for you to say he blamed his wife because we're all in that boat, right? Yeah, it was her fault. But he doesn't just blame his wife. He blames God for giving him his wife. The woman that you gave me, God, she gave me the fruit. Adam's saying it's not even my fault here. It's her fault. Actually, it's your fault. You're the one that gave this woman to me. I didn't ask for that. I was asleep. Right? Like, we are such, we are so afraid to take responsibility when we sin. We hide and then we shift the blame to somebody else. Eve does the same thing. God turns to Eve and says, what, what have you done? And Eve responds, well, the serpent tricked me. He tricked me. He deceived me. And so then I ate. her response is classic right the devil made me do it that's why I sinned that's why I did it it's his fault it's not my fault everybody's shifting blame nobody's owning it nobody's confessing their sin and being restored they're like no the woman that you gave me did it in fact Eve's kind of blaming God too the serpent you made him remember you created the snake he's the one who tricked me Man, we're so bad at that. I, I think I've told this story before. Like, I have a friend who has a wife, and they were talking about this one thing, and he, he was pointing out to her, because my friend is crazy, that she shifts blame a lot. Like, he was saying, you know what? You're a blame shifter. That's what you do. When, you, when, you, when you're wrong, you shift blame. I, I guess he likes sleeping on the couch, right? He was pointing that out to his wife. And she took a day to think about it, and she came back, and she said, you know what? I've thought about it, and you're right. I am a blame shifter, and I've realized that I get it from my mom. She's not wrong, <laughs> because she's all of us. It's never our fault. We don't ever want to own it. Here's what God's wanting. Own it. You're going to make mistakes. It's okay. You're, you're, it's part of the human existence. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to disobey. God wants us to move towards him instead of hide from him. He wants us to confess our sin, not try to blame shift. He wants us to own it, and then he restores us. Because God pursues us. Man, that's, that's really good news, but I want to give you all the news. I don't want to just give you just the good news. I want to give you the whole story. And so God doesn't just pursue us. God also punishes. God punishes. And we have to deal with this because it's a part of the story and it's a part of reality. It's a part of the Bible that God is loving enough to pursue us when we sin and disobey him. But he's also Holy. And so a holy God and a just God has to deal with sin. He has to punish the sin. He has to pour out discipline. And there, it's just consequences come when we disobey. Why? Because he's loving and holy. And, and the Bible paints that picture throughout Scripture of God being holy and loving at the very same time. Here's one place that you can see that. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Look at the other part. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. You see it, right? In those two verses, he's loving, he's slow to anger, he's gracious, he's forgiving, but he also punishes sin. He wouldn't be that great of a God if he didn't punish sin, if he didn't pour out discipline, if, if he wasn't holy, At the same time as loving, he wouldn't be that great. He wouldn't be that worthy of worship, but he is. He's every bit loving and gracious and slow to anger and every bit holy and deals with sin. And so we need to embrace that. We need to understand that. We need to come to grips with the fact that God pursues us in our sin, but there still will be consequences when we disobey. Like he doesn't just wipe that away and say no big deal. He's holy. He's just. Warren Wiersbe, uh, I, I was using his book, Be Basic, uh, talking about the first few chapters of Genesis, believing the simple truth of God's Word. And uh, I've used Warren Wiers, Wiersbe's commentaries and Bible studies a lot, and then I don't know if you know this or even know who that is, but he, he actually passed uh, away this week. Uh, he was uh, maybe 90 years old, he was very old, um, lived an amazing life, and um, I thought it was just great that... Today I was using a quote from him, but his, his quote from this book about Genesis sums this up so well. God's love for sinners in no way eliminates his holy hatred for sin. While it's true that God is love, it's also true that God is light. In him there is no darkness. A holy God must deal with sin for the good of the sinner, which is very hard for us sometimes to understand and for the glory of his name. A holy God must deal with sin for the good of the sinner and for the glory of his name. And that's the picture that the Bible paints for us. The God is... Loving and pursuing us, but when we disobey, he disciplines those he loves. He disciplines his children. And if you understand the whole picture, if you understand both sides of this, that God's not angry and ready to zap us every time we step out of line, but he pursues us because he wants something better for us, then here's what happens. All of a sudden, you can trust God's discipline. You can trust his punishment, you can trust the consequences because you know that he has your ultimate good in mind, because he 's loving and holy when he deals with us because of our sin. when he disciplines his children, we can trust him. And so in this story, you see God discipline the people involved, the, the well all the parties involved there 's an interesting kind of pattern to the story where, in the first story that Kai was talking about last week, the serpent started talking to Eve, and then Eve gave in and was tempted and, and started eating, and then she handed it to Adam, who, it says in the, that part of the story that Adam was with her, so there's an the indication that Adam might have just been standing there watching the whole thing go down. You talk to the snake, I ain't talking to the snake, like, I don't know what's going on, but he, she hands, so there's the serpent, Eve, Adam, order, when God comes walking, he calls out to Adam. When he, when, he, when he starts the conversation, he goes, Adam, what have you done? From that, that point forward, he goes from Adam, and then ask Eve, and then when he starts dealing out the punishment, he goes to the serpent first. And I want you to see that. Um, verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. Remember, the serpent was more crafty than all the other beasts, and now he's more cursed than all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity, or hatred, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So there's this practical, don't rush past this punishment for the serpent, basically says, you're going to be hated by people. Like they're always going to be trying to kill you. No one's going to like snakes and be in their right mind. That's what, that's part of the punishment here. If you don't like snakes, raise your hand real fast. Yes, that should be every one of you, right? We don't like snakes. And you think, well, wow, that's weird that all of us don't like snakes. You think that's a coincidence. I say, no, that's God. That's what that is. That's that's God's working in your life to tell you, yeah, he cursed those snakes and we're not supposed to like them. A good snake is a dead snake. That's, that should be one of our, maybe one of our values. We could add that in. It's like, and so there's a practical side of this. The snake's gonna always be trying to get the humans and he's gonna, he's gonna get their heel. That's why snake-proof boots are really all you need. You can't get up much more than your knee so you just get some good snake-proof boots at Academy and just, you're fine. We can crush their head. Unless you go to Africa and get those black mambas. They do some weird stuff. But like most snakes, snake-proof boots, all you need. Because they're going to try to strike our heel and we can crush their head. There's going to be enmity between snakes and humans forever. Practical punishment. But there's also like this foreshadowing, right? There's these shadows of the cross, these shadows of the gospel all throughout our Bible. Especially here in Genesis chapter 3. In verse 15 he says this between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. He, he shall crush your head while you bruise his heel. And every commentator believes that that was pointing to the gospel. That's the first pronouncement of the gospel in our Bibles, that there's gonna be an offspring coming from the woman one day. And you're gonna strike him at the heel and you're gonna give him a blow, but he's gonna crush your head. He's gonna die on a cross and he's gonna defeat death and he's going to win a victory, and he's going to start the whole process restoring the earth back to a new creation, new earth, completely over. And so there's this foreshadowing in the punishment as well, that there's always going to be strife. There's always going to be this battle between good and evil. Later, the, the Bible's going to identify the serpent with Satan and the evil that comes from him and so here's the punishment there's this battle that's going to be going on until Christ makes everything new between good and evil and we're going to endure that we're going to continue to be fighting that battle because this punishment has been doled out and then God looks at the woman he says I will verse 16 I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing in pain you shall bring forth children your desire shall be contrary to your husband or your desire shall be for your husband but he shall rule over you As you understand what God is doing, there's some poetic justice here. He's he's punishing her in what makes her uniquely a woman. She's the life giver. She's the one who's going to bear children. God has appointed her for that role. And she's going to get to keep that role, that God-appointed role. But now she's going to experience pain in that process. But the punishment is striking at the heart of what makes her a woman. you're going to experience pain. The words that are used there are really from Conception all the way through delivery. It's not just delivery. So morning sickness is a result of the fall. Like that's what this is telling us, that there's going to be pain and it's going to be difficult, but you still get to f- perform this role, but it's going to be, it's going to be hard. And, and just as a, kind of a side note, like what God is doing here is not giving commandments to be followed. He's, he's issuing out an oracle of consequences for their sin so if we avoid pain at childbirth if we use medicine and common grace like that and use that we're not disobeying a commandment we're just recognizing the fact that God said it's going to happen it still is like there's still that consequences with us that there's pain in the childbirthing process so he pours out that punishment and then he says this your desire shall be for your husband or contrary to your husband but he shall rule over you and so you remember, we talked about this a couple of weeks on Easter, that God had designed man and woman to go together perfectly, to complement each other, that where he's weak, she'll be strong. Where she's weak, he'll be strong. That he designed Eve to be a helper, perfect, strong helper, working beside him in the, God, the job that God had given them. And now right here it says that this marriage, this relationship, it's going to have difficulty. That the woman's going to desire something contrary to her husband. So I know this is kind of crazy. This is just hypothetical for us. Just go go with the hypothetical here that maybe what this means that we as we play this out is that maybe in our marriage relationships that the woman will sometimes want to lead instead of be led by the husband. Just it's just hypothetical. Just go go there. And that maybe the man won't always lead the way he's supposed to lead and he'll just back up and just let let her take the reins and maybe that'll create conflict or maybe they'll be going in different directions or maybe they'll be pulling completely opposite of each other and they won't be on the same page and maybe there'll be strife and, and, and conflict in our marriages. That, that could be a possible hypothetical result of this sin. Then he turns to Adam and he says, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curses the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Adam, you're the one that's designed, your job is to cultivate the earth. Your job is to grow the plants and, and provide for your family, and you're going to still get to do that job, but now it's going to be hard. Remember, work is not the punishment for sin. Work is a blessing God gave us, but because of sin, it's difficult. You're going to try to grow stuff, and you're going to get weeds and thorns and thistles, and you're going to have to pull them all the time. It's going to be difficult. You're going to sweat. It's going to wear you out. That rhythm of life where we work and then we rest, that's still there, but now you're going to desperately need it because work is going to wear you out. And so the punishment that God gives is for them specifically, but it's also this big picture. It's it's consequences that we deal with. It informs our view of the world. It helps us to understand what's wrong with the world. Why is everything so hard? Why is conflict always in the middle of this? It's not punishment without... Recovery, it's not punishment without hope because God continually gives us hope. The rest of Scripture gives us hope. Ephesians 5 tells us that our marriages can rise above the conflict that exists because of sin, that we can actually adopt a gospel view of marriage and we can, as husbands, love our wives and serve our wives and lay down our lives for our wives. And women, you can allow your husband to lead you and to shepherd you and you can work beside him in that process, that our marriages can reflect the gospel because of Jesus and the hope that he has for us. But if we don't embrace that, if we don't look to him for help, if we don't run to Jesus for help, then we will deal with this conflict. There's hope in that, that we can rise above it because of the power of the gospel working through us. But the consequences are there and have always been there since this day and will continue to be there until Jesus makes all things new. God is loving and he pursues us and God punishes But God also provides God provides everything that we need. In this story and in all of our lives, he provides the solutions. He provides the only solution to our sin problem, to our disobedience problem, to our failures. All of that God provides over and over and over again. Look at the story, verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. The the name Eve means life or life giver. And so Adam responds kind of with faith and obedience. Okay, God, Eve's still going to get to do what you've called her to do. You're not killing us today. Then I'm going to name her, I'm going to name this woman Eve to reflect that I believe what you said. She's going to be the life giver. And then right after that, in verse 21, it says, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now you remember the story, they realized they were naked and they made some clothes out of fig leaves and they hid from God. And God said, what's going on? What's the problem? And so at the end of the story, after God doles out his punishment, he provides for them a real covering. And you can say a lot about that story and how it's going to point to the, the sacrificial system and I think that may be there. But just before you run there, just, just acknowledge this. So what that story may be telling us is that God is the only one that can cover our sin. He's the only one that can adequately and completely cover our sin. Their fig leaves are going to wear out. That's not going to work. That's not going to really cover their shame and their guilt. So God provides skin from an animal, a garment, a tunic is really the word there, something that covers them completely because only God can cover and provide what we need for our disobedience and rebellion. That's part of the story. It's pointing to what Christ is going to do. And then verse 22, look at this. The Lord God said, hey, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. So if he reached out his hand, take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. That wouldn't be good. So verse 23, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So at the end of this, there's more punishment. He's driven out of the garden. He's He's told to leave the garden. He can't ever come back in. There's an angel there with a sword that's like lightning that's guarding the garden. You can't go back in. And you look at that, man, man, that is harsh. And then you stop and think what God is saying here. He's saying, hey, now that he's sinned, now that he's aware that he's on the wrong side of this thing, now that he's under this curse, if he goes back in the garden and eats the tree of life and he lives forever, that's not good. And so I want you to see God's final act here of driving them out of the garden as an act of mercy. Alan Ross uh, wrote a book called Creation and Blessing, and here's what he said about that. Eating from one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, kept the humans from eating from the other, the eternal tree of life. They ate of the wrong tree, and now all of a sudden they can't eat of the tree of life and live forever. Why? He says, or if we say it in terms of the spiritual reality behind the story, when the human beings disobeyed God and experienced evil, they were prevented by God from living on perpetually in that state. God's act of mercy is to drive them out of the garden and not give them access to the tree of life because he doesn't want them to live forever in a state of disobedience and rebellion and under the curse. Death is an act of mercy for God because it moves us forward. There's no, there's no going back in the story. There's no, They're going to be restored to their perfect condition and go back and be able to eat the fruit and enjoy the garden. No, this is God pushing them forward because death is going to come and eliminate some of that suffering that temporally, and then Jesus is going to come and restore everything in the end and eliminate that suffering for all eternity. So he's pushing them forward, not allowing them to go back. It's an act of mercy that he says, no, they humans can't live forever now under the curse. And so God provides. Even in his punishment, he has our good in mind. It's merciful, it's loving, it's in pursuing us. And we know this from the rest of the story. We know Jesus shows up in Luke 19:10 and says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, pursuing us. Chasing us down, rescuing us, giving us hope when we had no hope. And here's something really crazy and really cool. Revelation 13, 8, the last part of that verse says, The Lamb, talking about Jesus, who was slain, went from the foundation of the world. That Jesus was going to die. For us to make a way for us and this was a plan put in place from the foundation of the world from the creation story before anybody fell before anybody disobeyed before all the sin wreaked havoc on the world there was a plan in place for Jesus to come and die in our place and rescue us and redeem us from that God provides the only hope that we have the only solution that we have in Jesus so when you sin in a few minutes, or you sin this afternoon, or you disobey him tomorrow morning, you got a choice. I can run and hide. I can try to cover it up. I can try to blame somebody else, or you can run to him. And you can own it and confess it. And because of what Jesus Christ did for us, because of this gospel story, him seeking us and saving us, We know that we'll be restored. We know that we'll be received. We know that God is pursuing us to restore us. Psalm 32 is a great psalm. It's a psalm that David wrote, and this is kind of weird, but he wrote it after he wrote Psalm 51. And you may be familiar with Psalm 51 because Psalm 51 is David's confession of his great sin with Bathsheba. He confesses his sin to God. And Psalm 32, it's not in chronological order here, Psalm 32 he wrote after that experience. And he basically is writing it about his confession experience and how he wasn't ready to confess and then he did and the, and the relief that that brought. And I'm going to read that to us and it'll be on the screen in the New Living Translation because I think the wording here can really, really set us free. I want to read this as we close today. I want you to just pay attention to the words of this Psalm of Confession. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you, and I stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there is still time, that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. For you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. The Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. Don't be like a senseless horse or mule that needs a bit and bridle to keep it under control. Many sorrows come to the wicked. But unfailing love surrounds those who trust the Lord. So rejoice in the Lord and be glad, all you who obey him. Shout for joy, all you whose hearts are pure. Let's pray. God, thank you for the truth of your word. And thank you for the forgiveness that you offer that we couldn't earn And we don't deserve, we couldn't work for it, couldn't sacrifice enough for it. You just give it as a free gift because of what Jesus accomplished for us. And God, I'm thankful that you're a God that pursues us. And I'm thankful that you're holy and loving. I'm thankful that even in the punishment, even in the discipline, even in the difficult times, we can trust you because you provide. And you've provided the ultimate solution for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that we would respond to you and who you are with obedience today. And that when we disobey, we respond by running to you and confessing and receiving restoration. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen.